Let's read from Psalm 103, uh, verses 1 through 14 this morning. It's a Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that as we hear your word, as we think about and meditate on who you are, Lord, that you would encourage us and that you would help us see how great and good you are and that you would grow within us. Spirit, we would pray and ask that you would work within us to produce love and faith and joy, that you would help us know you well and walk with you and embrace you, God, as our Father. So, so give us grace now as we hear. Bless your word. We thank you for it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, once again, happy Father's Day to you dads. It's glad, we're glad that you're here and thankful for you. We'll have a little something for you after the service this morning. If you haven't already picked one up to help your dad bod and to, uh, to advance that uh, work along in your life. Uh, I want to ask this morning if you think it's a good thing for us to think about and to talk about God as our Father. Jesus encourages us to pray, and he says, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, but is that really a good way for us to perceive of and to think about God in, in our lives? For probably most of us, the answer to that question depends on our own experience with our fathers already in this world. So is the relationship of a child to a father as, as how we would compare ourselves with God, is that a good thing? It all relates, I think, in many ways to your experience. Uh, for me, my experience with my own dad, it's, it's been a pretty good one. Uh, my dad, David, he has always been my dad. He comes from a long line of dads on his father's side. And yes, that is three dad jokes for you all right in a row. Compliments of Nick Thune. Some of you are just now getting them. Um, all joking aside, my dad loves Christ. He loves my mom. He's been married to her for 49 years. They just celebrated that a few weeks ago. 
He's been a good model to me of Christ and uh, to my younger brother as, as we've looked to him in that way. Uh, his grandchildren, my, my kids, Allison and Ethan, and then uh, my brother's children, I think that it would all tell you how much they appreciate and love their grandpa. They look up to him. They enjoy him. And it's true. He has not done everything perfectly. He would be the first one to admit that. But in so many ways, he has been a father worth imitating and worth following. I'm deeply grateful for the father that the Lord has given me, my dad. But I also recognize that the experience I've had with a father may be not the same one that you've had with a father. Your experience with a father may have been an experience of abandonment, perhaps, or absence completely. Uh, For some of you, I'm sorry, you may have experienced abuse from your father, or maybe something else that does not incline you in any way to think positively about the notion of God being a father. One of the specific wounds that I think so many carry from their father is a debilitating lack of understanding of their own identity and value because they have not heard it or experienced it from their dad. In that, there was a lack of perhaps affection that your dad showed you or maybe affirmation that your dad would or would not give you. And out of that lack, you don't feel encouraged. You don't feel affirmed. And and perhaps you never knew where you stood with your dad, and so you don't know how you stand with God. Maybe you have some of that low latent questioning about, is your father always angry with you? Or, Or does he even really care for you at all? And so the question really sits in your heart of, who am I to my father? Who are you to your father? And, and out of that question, it paints the picture on how you perceive God. Because that's our experience with our fathers, for the good or the worse, we carry the same question towards God when we hear him described as a father as well. We ask ourselves the question, who am I to God? If, if my father related to me in this way, how does God relate to me? How does he perceive me and see me? Now, I just want to let dads off the hook for a moment this morning. This sermon is not specifically about you. I'm not going to give you any practical father tips today. Uh, As I said, we'll have something for you after the service to help your dad bod. But I'm not going to tell you how to be a better dad this morning, okay? I want to just take that pressure off. I want to speak to all of us this morning, but I want us to go to Psalm 103 because I want us to see who God is. I want us to help get a view of him in our hearts and our minds to maybe change the way we perceive him as father. If we see God well, if we see him rightly, if we grow in our understanding of him, I think we'll grow in our relationship with him in such a way that if we see his love and care and compassion for us, we'll be able to to open up our hearts to be able to say, God, you are my father. But if we're going to do that, we have to confront the challenge that God, calling God our Father brings into our lives today. And so my goal this morning is to understand better who God is so that we can better understand who we are. We're answering the question, who are we to God as his children? Now David is attributed as the writer of this psalm, and he's calling out for us. He says right there at verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. So this is David's work of praise and worship to God. And he just says, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. David has a big, glorious, grand view of God. He sees God as one who is worthy of all worship and praise, that every ounce of him should be lifting up worship to God and blessing God with all that was 
within him because of who he is. And then he says it again in verse 2. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. But he calls to a key action for us here in verse 2. He calls to himself and he says, bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. He's just saying here, David, and he's saying to himself, David, remember who God is. He's telling us and calling us to say, remember who God is. Remember his perspective and his benefits, his, his inclination towards his children, as it were. And that perspective that he's calling us to remember is one of God being a gracious, giving, beneficiary God. Don't forget how good God is, he says. Don't forget his benefits. So let's lean into that for just a moment this morning. What are these benefits? What, is, what are we talking about when we think about God, as we're thinking about worshiping God and we should bless him? What are the benefits that he inclines and gives to his children? Well, verses 6 through 14 tell the story of that. David then takes the perspective from himself of saying, bless the Lord, and he says, let me tell you about who this God is. Let me tell you to the church, to the community, here's who this God is and the benefits that come from him if you have him as your father. We could identify three of them, the, them in the passage. Really, if you just want to be with me on this, it's really just one benefit, but it's so big that I can describe it in three different ways. And, and, and I'll ask the question in this way. Do you have God as your father? And if so, what does that mean? And let me answer it by showing you this, three things, three benefits of having God as your father. First of all, if you have God as your father, then you are the beneficiary of mercy. You are the beneficiary of mercy. So after this prologue of praise, David gets into the heart of why God's children should praise him all the more and bless his name, why we should with every ounce of who we are worship him. And and verses 6 through 10 give a vantage point of God's nature for us. David gets right to the heart of who God is. That's that's what he's inclining us to, to see. But more than just theological facts, David isn't just writing down rote things on the page to remind us of. He wants us to experience God. He wants us to know God is for us. So I think verse 10 could be the pinnacle summary of this section in verses 6 through 14. Verse 10, this statement, God, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. That is to say that God doesn't treat with us and relate with us in the way that we deserve. He has a whole different standard, a whole different way of operating towards his children. So what is that? Let's put that thought in your mind. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. What is, why is that the case? What does that look like? Consider what David says at the beginning here, verse 6. He says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And here he's just describing for us God as a holy, righteous, just God. God does the right things. He is righteous and just in all his works, and he manufactures or works righteousness and justice in the world, particularly towards those who are victims of oppression and injustice. He is a God who sets all things right and brings about perfect equity and justice. We're taking a little pause this morning in our series in Revelation, but we're seeing, as we, as we come down to the very end of the book, we are seeing a God who is making all things new and making all things right, and he promises that towards us. He's a God who sets all things right. Derek Kidner, 
an Old Testament scholar, says God put straight not only the record, but the whole situation and the people concerned. He's a God who's going to make us right, make us new. And he's going to bring justice and righteousness and equity for us and in us and for the world. Now, now you might think about that and go, yes, that's good news. I want that. But that can also be bad news as well. It could be bad news because we are the ones who are doing the wrong, right? Like, we got to look at ourselves and just acknowledge that the wrongdoing happening in the world is because of us. The biggest problem in the world, it's me. And I hope you would say that about yourself as well. It's us. We're the ones who are creating injustice all over the place. Our sin enslaves us and it enslaves others. It breaks what God has made good and right. So what we really deserve is God's anger and fury and justice aimed at us. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. And that's what we should have coming towards us. God's justice because of our sin. His wrath because of our unrighteousness and iniquity. And yet, there's good news as well in this. Because we're also the victims of unrighteousness and injustice. We are sinned against as well. And as sinners, we live in a sin-broken, sin-dominated, sin-wrecked world. And we're crushed under the oppression of Satan, sin, and death. And so the good news is for us that God, our Father, will make all things right. He will bring justice for his children. That's good news. But how does he do that? Well, David keeps describing God. He, he takes us back, as it were, to the situation of Israel in captivity in Egypt and, and God's power and miraculous work to liberate the Israelites, to bring them out of Egypt across the Red Sea to a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and through the wilderness wandering, he displayed and declared and showed himself. So he says in verse 7, He, God, made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. God didn't stand far off, aloof, away. He wasn't an absentee father. He got real close and he said, let me tell you who I am. He got close to his children. God condescends to his creatures. He speaks our language and tells us who he is. Well, who is he? As, as, as God described and showed his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel, it came about in a pinnacle moment of him declaring and displaying who he was. Israel had come through the Red Sea. They were in the wilderness. And, and there God brought them to the Mount of Sinai where he gave them his law. He gave them his commands. And not 10 minutes after giving them those commands, they were already running off in idolatry. They made a false uh, golden calf to worship, a false idol to bow down to. And there's God on the mountain with Moses saying, what is happening? Moses comes down and he shatters, he throws the the tablets of stone, the the law there, and just breaks everything. Feels like God should just wipe them out. And God says, I can do that. Moses mediates on Israel's behalf. He, He goes before the Lord. And God displays his grace and kindness. He doesn't cast them off. He receives them. He reconciles them to himself. And Moses, he cries out to God and he says, God, we won't move forward from this mountain unless you go with us. So show me who you are. And there on that mountain, God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, as it were. And he, and he passed in front of Moses with all his glory. And he dis- 
displayed and declared his name. He said this in Exodus 33:19. He said, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord." And so as he hid Moses in the mountain, he states and declares himself before Moses. What Psalm 103, 8 through 10 states is almost verbatim Exodus 34, 6. I think David just lifts it and quotes it himself. Who is this God? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Like This is God towards his children. It's the fundamental nature of God. God is love, and this is how he displays and shows his love. He says he is merciful. That is God not giving us what we deserve. He holds back his anger and his wrath, and he's gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve, life, abundance, reconciliation with him. He's slow to anger. He's not one who flies off the hook or short-fused with rage. He's patient. He says he abounds in steadfast love. That is to say there is no limit or insufficiency in God's love. Because God pours his love out towards you doesn't mean he's lacking in love towards you. He abounds in love and faithfulness. There is no limit. It's overflowing. He is overflowing with steadfast, covenant, faithful enduring love he does not always chide that is he he won't always hold the verdict against us nor does he keep his anger forever towards his children God does not hold a grudge he he doesn't let rage against his children mount up and then draw it out years later and says I'm so mad at you because of that He is a God of love and grace. This is his fundamental nature, his very character. So that, verse 10, David can get to the point where he says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God's fundamental disposition towards his children is completely different. It's love and grace. He is positively disposed towards his kids. And that's why we should desire and pursue having God as our Father. His inclination towards his, those who he loves are his love and tenderness and grace. His mercy is for his kids, his children. We ask, who are his children? How, how do I get in on that? His, his children are those who turn from their sin and rebellion against him. They turn in repentance and they embrace and receive Jesus Christ, his son, as their only hope by faith. John puts it this way in John 1.12. He says, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is the only way to get into God's family. The only way to be a child of his is through Christ alone. If you believe in his name, if you trust in Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. You this morning can get in on his mercy and grace as a child by turning from your sin like a child, repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ, laying your life at his feet because he died for you and on the third day he was raised to life, you can have life. So friend, if you're you're a child of God, if you've trusted Christ and put your hope in him, I don't want you to see God as angry at you. I don't want you to see God with vengeance or pent-up rage towards you. I want you to see God as he is. 
His disposition towards you is not one of anger or disappointment or frustration or displeasure. He delights in you. He loves you. He is merciful towards you. And you, as his child, are the beneficiary of his mercy. That's one way of talking about his benefits, his love towards us. If you're God's child, then you have his mercy aimed right at you. That's who he is towards his children. But let me talk about it in a second way, okay? If you have God as your father, and again, I'll ask you the question, do you have God as, a fa- as your father? If you have God as your father, then secondly, you are the focus of his love. You're the focus of his love. Now look with me at verses 11 and 12. Here David gets a little spacey, to be honest. Not in the absent-minded kind of way, but, but in the spatial way, in the comparison that he makes. And he makes two comparisons. We get asked the question, how much does God love his children? How much does he love you? Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love, his steadfast love, towards those who fear him. Now just catch the code here, the phrase, towards those who fear him, refers to his children, those who trust and put their hope in him. So if that's you, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his steadfast love is for you. Now, the purpose of saying it this way isn't for us in our modern world, in our 21st century physics and science and calculators, to get our measurement tools out and to go, okay, here precisely is how much God loves me. You can go on Google and you can ask, what's the distance between the earth and space? And you'll find the answer. And that answer is not, I'll just give it to you, 62 miles, okay? David is not saying God loves you 62 miles, okay? He's, he's trying to make this comparison, like, you don't even know how to measure the distance from the earth to the heavens. And the heavens beyond that, like you, you think about the grandness of the universe, no way for you to measure that. Billions and billions and billions of light years. Can you even comprehend that? That's how great God's love is towards his children. That's how much he loves you. And so it is with God's love. It's immeasurable. It's infinite. Aimed, focused right at you. He's speaking about, David, again, is speaking about those who put their hope and trust in Christ. Do you, do you have God as your father? His love is aimed right at you. His love is infinite towards his children. The apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8. He said, for I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, catch this here, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God's love. His love for his children is infinite. And you go, wait, wait, some of you might object here. And you say, well, wait, I know something that will separate me, my sin. What about that? Doesn't sin separate me from God and break the relationship? Aren't I in jeopardy with God because I'm a sinner and I continue to sin? Well, here again is where David breaks out another comparison, another spatial comparison. Here's what God does for his children in verse 12. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now note here, the end of verse verse 12 states that God removes our transgressions or our sins from us. God does not separate himself from his sinful children. He separates their sins from them. God doesn't go anywhere. In fact, he draws closer and he deals with our sin. He's like a doctor 
who separates a tumorous mass that is destroying the body from the body so that body can live. God takes away, he separates us from the very thing that kills us. How far does he separate us from that? How far does he take away our sins and remove them from us? Well, again, he says, as far as east is from the west. Let's ask, how far is east from west? Let me help you with a picture of this directionally. Notice here that David doesn't say, as far as north is from south. Well, and I think this is fun for you who may espouse the flat earth theory. You've got to account for David on this, all right? If you walk north, eventually you hit south, right? Come to the North Pole and all of a sudden you're walking the other direction. If you fly south, you keep going south, eventually you're going to be going north. That's just the way it happens. The closer you get to ultimate north, the closer you are to heading south. But east from west, the farther you go east, you're going to just keep going east. You'll never run into west. Always heading east. And, and if you go west, young man, you're just going to keep going west, headed that direction. East and west never intersect. Now think about this here. That's how, God, that's how far God removes our sin from us. Infinitely. So how much does he love you? Infinitely. How far away does he take the thing that separates you from him or that causes that relational discord? Infinitely. His love for you is infinite. And how is that the case? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, if he is inclined to us as a father, who can be against us? He who, note this here, he who did not spare his own son, this is how he did it. He didn't spare his own son, Jesus, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died in our place. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is right now interceding for his children, for us. God is for his children. God gave his son Jesus to remove our sins. He loves us. And so he asked in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is nothing. No one. It's impossible. If you are God's child, his love for you is infinitely great and nothing can separate you from that love. Friends, that's good news. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Only your sin is removed infinitely as far as east is from the west. So I think it's worth the question. Do you have God as your father? If so, his smile and his love is aimed right at you. Infinite smile, infinite love. Okay, we're, we're trying to remember what David is trying to help us. He says, forget not, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. So we're trying to remember that. We're trying to remember that so that we can perceive and relate to God as our Father. We're looking at these benefits. We're the beneficiary of his mercy we're the focus of his love. Here's a third way to talk about this again. If, God, if you have God as your father, you are the recipient of his compassion. 
You're the recipient of his compassion. David now in verses 13 and 14, he brings this into the context of the family. Here's another way of seeing God's heart for his children. So he says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, please, don't let the warped and distorted experiences of imperfect fathers towards you, towards their children, disrupt the truth that is here. Ideally, fathers show compassion towards their children. Ideally, fathers recognize the weakness and dependency and need of their children, and they supply what is lacking. I mean, my daughter knows this, how to press this button in my life easily. She just gets her big, googly deer eyes, cuddles up next to me on the couch, and says, oh, daddy, please, and the credit card is hers, and she's gone, right? She just knows. That's God's inclination and heart towards his children. Some of the best words out there are, dad, I need help. Dad knows, our father in heaven knows our need, and that's his inclination as well. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to his. And why does he do that? Because he knows what we are. He knows our weakness. He knows, verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I mean, God knows that we're dust. He made humanity from the dust of the ground. So, so, so he knows you're not super strong. You're not infinitely powerful. You don't have it all together. You're not going to last forever. You're essentially dirt. And that's not being a, a, an offensive thing to say. He just knows that's how he's formed us, out of what he's formed us and what we're headed to, and he's okay with that. You might think... Uh, you know, God can't take me. He wouldn't respect me. He wouldn't value me because I'm just, I'm worthless and I'm a worm and I'm dirt and the Bible says that. And why in the world would God think anything of me in that way? And that's exactly the inclination and the posture that God wants you to have in coming to him. He takes on and loves weak, tired, dependent human beings who say, hey, I, I have nothing good going on. I'm just like a little baby that just cries out, help. And he says, great. Because I want to be the strong one. I want to so, show you my sufficiency. I want to show you my power. I want to show you my love. I want you to see the wealth of resources and riches that I have aimed at for you. So be the weak one. Be, be the one who is, who is just lowly. That's how Jesus said to come to him, right? Like little children. He didn't, he didn't say, God isn't repulsed by your weakness or your need. In fact, it's a lie from the pit of hell to think that you've got to get spiritually strong for God to have your attention. God's not inclined to the strong and the put together and the powerful and the self-sufficient. God does not help those who help themselves. His care is for his children, his kids. His care is for his children that know they are weak and needy and insufficient. And Jesus modeled that for us. Jesus shows that right away. I think it's interesting that all three of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them tell the same story. It's that important to our understanding of who God is. And the story is of parents bringing children to Jesus. Mark 10 just kind of lets us in on this story from Mark's angle. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them and bless them. And what was happening? The disciples rebuked them. They rebuked these parents. Get out of here. We don't want your kids around. They're a mess. They're a nuisance. No way. But 
This is what scripture records about Jesus. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That is, he was filled with a lot of anger at that moment. He was unhappy with his disciples, and he rebuked them, and he said, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. That's how we come to God as our Father, like little kids, weak and insufficient, just reaching out and saying, Lord, bless me, help me, touch me, I need you. God's kingdom is for those who see their need and their weakness and their infirmity and say, Dad, help what does that mean for us? We have a strong, capable, perfect, compassionate Heavenly Father that welcomes and receives us, not repulsed by our weakness, but loves his weak little kids coming to him. Nahum says it this way, the message translation, God is good, a hiding place in tough times. He recognizes, that is, he sees, and he welcomes anyone looking for help. Is that you today? You may envision yourself like, like the prodigal son, the kid who ran off, squandered everything you had spiritually, ruined your father's name, and you may think there's no way God is going to have anything to do with me. And friend, you couldn't be more wrong. He welcomes anyone looking for help. The point is you can run to the Father today and he will be ready for you with arms open wide to receive you back, to remove your sin, to show you his compassion and mercy as a child. The door is wide open for anyone to walk through and to get in on God's love. Do you have God as your Father? If you do, you are the recipient of his compassion. He loves you. Now, let me just wrap it up this way. These three benefits are really one, and they're so huge. If you have God for your Father, then you are the recipient of everything good and wonderful and holy and eternal. Every blessing in the heavenly places is yours. But you have to have God as your Father. You cannot have the benefits of being His child without having Him as your Father. So if you don't, the way through is Christ. To come to Jesus today, turn from your sin, acknowledge your weakness, acknowledge your rebellion, and come to Jesus full of humility and need and say, save me, rescue me. And friend, he will. He won't turn anybody away. If you come like a little kid, you're in the family. He's yours. And if you do have God as your father, then let that change the perspective of how you see him. If you do have him as your father, then let fatherhood be through the lens of God. He is full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love, compassionate to all who fear him. He is totally worth having and acknowledging as a father so that you can bless the Lord. The psalmist concludes the psalm this way. He says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. And bless you all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. And bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Will David's song be your song? Can you say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits because he is your father. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love 
your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your work on our behalf. So we bless you. We ascribe to you glory and honor and praise with all that we have within us, Lord. You are worthy. Father, you are great. I would pray today, Lord, that everyone here, everyone listening to this message, would know you as Father. Through Jesus Christ, that they would come and they would experience your love and goodness. Father, for the the runaways and the prodigals and, and those who are alienated and distant, today would your spirit be at work in them and draw them to yourself. Let them see your love. For those who are confused and tired and wonder about their identity and their value, would they see your love over them? And would you be their greatest treasure and joy? Help us to see how great and good you are so that we love you and walk with you. And we bless your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.